welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature Jonathan Kreisberg. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 28 of the High Action Podcast. We've got a really special guest today who means a lot to me personally, Mr. Jonathan Kreisberg. He's been a big mentor of mine over the years. And before we got into that, I wanted to ask John and Perry's opinion on live albums, because that was a big topic in Kreisberg's interview. He was talking about his recent live album, Capturing Spirits, and him basically saying, I don't even want to go back to the studio. I just want to make live albums. I think that's a really, really poignant statement. Perry, starting with you, who you, you have a recently released live album in the last couple of years. What do live albums mean to you for sharing music? Yeah, well, it's a great point, first of, first of all, that Kreisberg brings up. The fact that you're capturing, you know, the most honest snapshot of what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a very pure snapshot of what's going on. Because, you know, jazz has always been music that is kind of underground at its best, you know. It's sort of spontaneous in a lot of ways. And when you go into the studio, you kind of enter like a different world where you're trying to put things together in more of a crafted way. Sometimes when you're playing live, you don't always have that choice. You're just kind of going with the flow, going with the moment. Mm -hmm. And there's just a long tradition of great live albums in Mm -hmm. jazz that we're all huge fans of, whether it's West Montgomery albums or whether it's anything that was recorded at the Village Vanguard, you know, or Coltrane, Live at Newport, you know, the list goes on and on. So there's something really special about live albums that I think Kreisberg's referring to. But also, the industry has changed so much now. That yeah. recording albums is not as profitable uh, by a mile <laughs> than what it used to be. So I think there's also maybe some motivation behind what he's saying to just kind of record the show and not spend thousands and thousands of dollars locking out a studio and the time it takes because maybe it's not worth it for him anymore. And John, when I think about making a live album versus a studio album, I can easily get in my own head and really want to craft the whole thing and really want to sculpt this musical message that's going to be the ultimate product. Where live, you can still do that to an extent, but you're also much more subjected to what happens in the moment. What do you think about that? Yeah. And I mean, it's more exciting. It's more invigorating. It's just like the musicians that you're playing with too. I mean, having, especially if it's a live recording with a band that maybe you haven't been playing a lot with but it's with players you admire or guys like in the case of new west what we've done with our live recordings is we've done a lot of touring and then Mm -hmm. recorded maybe at the end of a string of gigs or after we've had a week playing together so there's all sorts of energy that comes off on the recording live that maybe doesn't come off in the studio and i think that musicians since the advent of jazz radio have had to make a little bit of a choice because as we know live recordings are tend to be really difficult to get jazz radio stations to push jazz radio stations traditionally don't chart 
live recordings as much. But yeah, I'm thankful to like Verve Jazz at the Philharmonic back in the 50s and 60s recording all those live recordings, sort of made live jazz recordings a thing um, at that time, you know, and it, that people continue to, to do today. And funny, we've kind of come around to it now with social media. Like Perry, you said, it's not really about the album anymore. It's about documenting the current project and people love seeing live footage of shows on social media you know and new west has a live album that we recorded in 2017 at the mock chunk opera house if you haven't checked that out it feels like a long time ago i mean it's about five years ago uh, before we listen to jonathan kreisberg want to remind you to smash that subscribe button on apple podcasts or spotify wherever you may be intaking and stay tuned for lots more fun guests. But in the meantime, please enjoy one of my great mentors, wonderful guitarist, hilarious individual, Mr. Jonathan Kreisberg. We've got Jonathan Kreisberg here, one of my one of my big big heroes and influences. Been a huge mentor to me over the years. Jonathan, what's up, man? Uh, it's great to be here. How you guys doing? Well, man, just to give some context, I remember my first lesson with you. I think was in 2013 or 2014, and I the first time I heard you was I think 2011. A buddy of mine in college had had sent me your version of um, Autumn in New York from the jazz baltica that live concert right oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was just i was amazed man and for this portion i just love to talk about you coming up and and how you got into guitar and talk about your time in miami but you were actually born in new york yeah that's right yeah 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 my, you know my folks were like kind of the typical wacky new york kind of intellectual couple i guess that, that you you know um the couple folks you might see in an old Woody Allen movie or something. Nice. <laughs> My mom was a Quaker from from Philly, who came to school in New York, and my dad was a a Jewish guy. With this, the family was like pretty much like Jewish ghetto style. You know, the the dad didn't even go to college, but but kind of you know was made connections and worked really hard. Mm-hmm. Met the the uh, his wife was a. Uh, the daughter of an eye doctor, so like you know, he kind of climbed himself his way up. So that, so you know that then my my dad and my mom were just like two people you wouldn't normally imagine meeting, but New York does that kind of thing, you know. So I you know they you know when I was like five or something, they they left New York to move to Miami, but I, I never I always felt like a New Yorker. So like I grew up in Miami, but I was the kid who said water, you know, instead of water. You know, so like, you know, and I just kind of, I always loved the weather in Miami and the culture is, is, is definitely unique, but I'll say that, you know, I definitely felt like a little bit like I wasn't in my place. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I I love Miami now to visit, but I always felt like a New Yorker, you know, Mm um, and and when I, I came back, you know, I was on tour with my, my first band was this trio out of um, Miami. And we, we all went to school together. And we, we did this kind of, 
we crossed the line a lot, like so much between straight ahead and fusion that we kind of forgot that there was a line. You know, it just, I've heard that became, stuff. I really enjoy it, man. And you're playing. Oh, Stratum, thanks, man. Right. Say, say again. You're playing a Stratocaster mostly on that stuff, right? Mostly on that. Yeah. I think there's only on the album, there's only one Gibson on there. Um, I love that and, album, man. Like you, and, and I can still hear it's you. Well, that's one of the things that cracks me up now is like, there's all these younger cats that are now getting into that thing, almost oblivious to the fact that like, you know, like some of them haven't really checked out even some of the guys that were really heavy back then. Right. And it's funny how things come around again, but I just want to be like, guys, you got to go like, check out this guy, check out this guy. You know, you know, I, I was, you know, at that time, pretty deep into both um, the directions, you know. Yeah. Um, I grew up hearing jazz. My dad, you know, being this, you know, the way he was, he just had a great, wide-ranging record collection. He was really into music, even though he wasn't a player himself. Um, and uh, I heard, you know, Miles and Train and all this stuff pretty young. So, I mean, it's funny. It's, I think about it, and a lot of the stuff that I heard on records today at that time are still like like if i really start thinking about like my favorite like the only thing my dad didn't have was maybe an alan holdsworth record you know what i mean if he had that then it would be almost be everything you know what i mean but but in a way the lineage was there like the stuff that he had was stuff that would influence you know matheny and holdsworth and schofield and all these guys you know so i got lucky that when i was you know basically According to him, in the womb, I was already hearing some of this stuff. Like, he used to put the headphones on my mom's stomach and stuff. So I was, you know, lucky in that way. Um, and it, the stuff he had was like, you know, he had Miles, you know, kind of blue, of course. Everyone had that. Um, round about midnight, um, he had My Favorite Things, which, you know, obviously was a big influence. But then he also had, like, a lot of, like, rock that was kind of leading into like progressive rock which of course was a ended up being a big part of my sound i feel like um so that was stuff like tommy like the who like uh, quadrophenia like that stuff was playing a lot um and then and then i ironically also stuff like like uh the soundtrack to uh zorba the greek you know, and, and and world music and stuff like that, that, like, I'd end up late, years later dating a, a Greek girl and, and writing tunes in, inspired a lot by music from that region, you know. Is one of your tunes Z- Zimbae Echo? How do I pronounce uh, that? Echo, yeah. Yeah. That's that's basically based on a Rembetica groove, which mm-hmm. is exactly on that record, probably, you know. I love it. Um, so, yeah, like, a lot of that stuff. I, I and, and, my, and they listen to, like, like I remember... Uh, like Bach, you know, uh, stuff, uh, piano and organ stuff, and and then Concerto de Aranjuez. So, like, all this stuff that later, I think, as I got older, whether I knew it or not, was, like, really, you know, part of things that I, that I loved. And the funny thing is, once I got into jazz, and this is maybe going into another subject, but, mm-hmm. but like, my dad got me a West record around, I want to say, like, 14 like right when i started like 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 there was a point around 14 15 when there was this thing that went off in my head like oh you can play jazz because at that point jazz wasn't guitar to me it was jazz was like horns and piano and stuff and i was like 
even before I heard Wes, like right before that, I just started realizing, oh, I can play that on guitar, you know, like those just because they're notes on another instrument. You know, it's like it's weird. It seems like an obvious thing. But when you're growing up playing classical and rock, you're just you're in that realm. Yeah. And you're playing guitar stuff, you know, so like suddenly you realize, oh, man, that 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 Coltrane stuff, I can actually try and learn to play. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And of course, then I started to realize the, the parallel. I didn't realize that Holdsworth was the missing link, but I, I heard that something that Train was doing on My Favorite Things and stuff that Eddie Van Halen was doing, mm -hmm. which was the guy that I heard that made me want to play guitar, you know, right. originally. And, of course, the, the missing link between those two is, is Holdsworth, because Holdsworth's really? the one that really tried to, to chase the train, and Eddie heard uh, Alan and yeah. tried to do that, what he was doing with two hands because he couldn't do it with one hand, you know? So it's, it's pretty interesting... But what I was going to say was at that point, my dad gave me a Wes record, and I'm going to say right now that I love Wes, and, and Wes still blows my mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure at that point he was already influencing me. But I will say that there was a conscious thing that I was like, or a subconscious thing, because I don't think at the time I could put it into words, but now when I think back, I think I can, which is I love the way Wes played, and I thought it was so poetic and so beautiful. But I think even at that point, I realized that the way he was playing was not exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like I didn't want to just mimic that way he was playing the guitar because it wasn't quite how I was hearing Train, Bird, Miles. That was a different, to me, there's a different sound there. Completely. And part of what Wes did was he embraced the guitar and he was like, okay, I'm going to kind of borrow from those guys, but I'm going to make it sound amazing on this instrument. He was one of the first guys that really... You know, I mean, of course, there was, you know, there was some other guys that were contemporaries that were already finding sound, but he really embraced the guitar in his own way. And he was like, I'm going to make this instrument sound great. I was playing with my thumb late at night and I realized this sounds really cool. Screw it. That's yeah. what I'm going to do, you know. But, but of course, I was already playing with a pick. I was listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan and Alan Holdsworth and Eddie Van Halen. And, and around that time, I probably heard Matheny and Schofield, and, and I just realized that that sound was more, I was going to get to that thing of trying to find my own way, you know. This episode of High Action is brought to you by Jeff Traugott Guitars. Jeff Traugott is an amazing luthier. He's based in Santa Cruz, California. New West has a long history with Jeff. We've performed on his instruments for almost 15 years now, in particular models like the R and the BK. Jeff's instruments are amongst the finest in the world for flat-top acoustic guitars. Uh, Chris Martin of Martin Guitars says, Builders like Jeff have helped raise the standards of our craft to the highest levels ever. So for more information on how you can find one of his instruments or to check out his current offerings, visit TraugottGuitars.com. Man, that's a good point you bring up. Not, not to get sidetracked from your story here, but I'd love to get your insight on like the, the amount of ways that a guitar can function in music or just in jazz is kind of, it is overwhelming if you just look at all the possible options. Definitely. It's the guitar. The guitar is like the wild west, you know, compared <laughs> yeah. to most other instruments. Like other instruments are like, you know, Europe. Like they've been around already for you know a thousand years, but we're still kind of like in the. Actually, yeah, it kind of goes with the name of your 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 thing, right? The New West Guitar yeah. Group. There you go. You know, when you guys do when you guys do your free album, you got to call it the Wild West. <laughs> yeah. 
We we actually did do a free concert one time at Kumbwe. We thought we were like the shit, you know. We thought, oh, let's just get up there for the second set and just say fuck it. Let's we're just gonna it. play free, and we enjoyed ourselves. I don't think the audience did as much. Well, that's and that's the story of of jazz, right? <laughs> we were listening to Keith live in Tokyo, two thousand five, on that tour, and we got there. And we're like, screw it, let's just play a set of free guitar quartet stuff, and like, yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's the kind of thing that I think every group is good to balance that in somehow. You know, it doesn't mean, I mean, it's cool you guys did that, but maybe you could even do one free thing a set or something. You know what I mean? Or have set, like in my band, there's always sections that are like, all right, whatever happens. You know what I mean? Right. I think uh, for, for, for people like us that, that grew up in the multiverse of, of jazz, it's cool to embrace that. In fact, that's like someone asked me once to kind of characterize what I was doing. And that was the way I described it. I said, like, you know, there's been so many uh, eras of jazz that were based on rejection. You know what I mean? And that was how they got to where they had to go. You know what I mean? Like, and that's amazing. I mean, because it took such courage, you know, that we probably don't necessarily have these days um it's hard to do that to do what train did when he said all right you know i've been playing over standards i've gotten as far as i want to go on this and this is like then he did like you know one into the giant steps phase and he did that for like two years and we're still working on it and and then he was like all right now i'm done with that now i'm doing this or miles when he said all right that's it no more acoustic bass like i'm doing this you know very bold moves this rejection like fusion is based on a rejection you know Bebop was based on a rejection. You know, Ornette Coleman was based on a rejection. All these major movements. But at the same time, I think what's happening now, it's hard to see because we're in it, is a kind of an embracing of everything, like a multiverse attitude. And and I also realized at some point, just kind of got some space and realized that that's why I like playing with Lonnie Smith, which is, which is, totally different than my music yeah. he does it in a totally different way but both of us have that same idea like okay study the hell out of the tradition but also like grab as much as you can from other experiences you've had and then bring them into one place but with integrity like find a way to do it where it's not like a gimmick it's not cheap you know what i mean find a way to really you know um if you're gonna play a bebop tune you better be able to hang you know and if you're gonna you're gonna borrow from uh, Greek traditional music. You better learn about what it comes from and how it works. You know all that kind of stuff. And and of course, you know, I mean, you know, I was kind of set up to do it because I I grew up in Miami. I got lucky, and Miami is one of those places where you could play one night playing a jazz gig, play one night playing a fusion gig, one night playing a, a progressive metal gig, mm-hmm. then play with a salsa band, play with a funk band. When you come to a place like New York and maybe even L.A., L.A. is more like Miami. It's like a little bit in between. But when you come to New York, for instance, that's not going to happen. Like when you come to New York, there's 50 guys that are the best progressive metal guys in the world. There's 50 guys that are the, the most nailing bebop guys you've heard in your life. All those guys are there waiting for those gigs. So you got to kind of choose. What am I going to what am I here for? What am I going to do? You know what I mean? And for me, the timing of that was perfect because it was like my early 20s, I'd moved to New York, I had done all that other stuff.
you were touring up and down the coast a lot with with that trio, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's why when, when I first went to New York and I, I heard some guys playing. I think it may have even been like Joel Fromm and Ari. Um, I also did a show with Rosenwinkel. We did like a like the two of us were kids basically, you know, and we played some double guitar bill. Nice. Um, and uh, basically, all that just I, I was like, I got to move to New York. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's it. <laughs> you know, I think the second time up there, I decided, and the, the guys didn't want to. The guys were going to stay in Miami, so it was it was a you know a, a radical departure from what I'd been doing. You know, um, I wasn't yet like my language and my and just my concept to me, my linear and my harmonic and everything wasn't as strong as it would be if I just got rid of everything and I just did what I did, which I started, I had a little Princeton modified amp that I, which is the one that was on all my albums between that trio, after that trio, until South of Everywhere, probably. Um, and I, uh, I just, that was it at that point. It was a guitar into a little reverb into that, and I did a bunch of gigs. I mean, more added later, of course, but the first, you know, zone when I did like trioing, and there's a quite a gap between that Miami Trio album and Trioing, which was the first thing I did in New York with Ari and Johannes. Was that a live album? Uh, I mean, it was recorded live style, but not at a gig. No. Yeah, man, a, that's a beautiful know. album, man. Your your version thanks, of man. all of you on that. Is... Oh, thanks. Yeah, you can hear my, that's when the language started to kind of become more closer to what I'm doing now. You know, speaking of that track. One one of the things that stands out to me so much about your playing is the way you comp for yourself. Yeah, on that album, it's also that's where that I mean because that's a period. Basically, people say, well, "What were you doing those five years or whatever?" Those five years, I was basically playing five nights a week or or something in New York. You know, I said I never took a gig that paid less than fifty bucks. So I, you know, it was it, it was it was they were probably ranging between like you know sixty and a hundred dollar gigs. You know, free booze, free food, so, you know, which is good and bad. Um, and, uh, you know, doing it that many times a week. But um, I was just learning tons of standards and, and getting into basically being a jazz player, you know what I mean? Which in Miami, you can't really do. You can't really, like you can in New York. I mean, you know. So trioing, and what was the next album after trioing? Was it Unearth? Yeah, good. You, you you know, see, a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people think Nine Stories Wide was next. Unearth is is an interesting like texture. You have trumpet on that, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the band at the time. I had a you know my first after around that time I put together. I had been kind of just gestating. That's the word, right? Um, you know, the, my concept as a composer in that time too, which was kind of separate from the jazz standards guy. You know what I mean? I was doing both. Um, and, and Unearth was the tunes that I was writing and the concept I was starting to get in my head and ex- also experimenting with sounds again a little bit, you know, getting back into that. Um, but yeah, Scott Wenholt, a great trumpeter. Um, at the time, of course, he was like older and it, it was like, you know, respected cat from the, from the Vanguard Orchestra and stuff. So it was a, cool to have a guy like that in the band and play with someone with a real jazz tradition but bring them into a kind of more modern thing which i think was a little more modern than what he had done too um at that point and that's when i started playing with matt penman who we went on to have a pretty long standing relationship um he was in a bunch of other records but um but that record wasn't uh, you know i was also like 
I just didn't have like I was talking to some labels at the time, mm-hmm. but I was just really bad at like business, and I just wanted to do things. I was kind of precocious, and I pissed a lot of people off. I would just go ahead and do stuff, and 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 no one was really doing their own labels then. But I was I had already done that with trio with uh, the Miami group, right. so I, I was like, you know, what I was ahead of the curve with what do you need labels for attitude, you know? Um, so I went and recorded on Earth. And funded it and you know produced it and everything and then in the context of that i basically jerry teakins from crisscross mm-hmm. called me and said man i i heard you i heard trioing I, you know he had a great voice you know and he heard trioing and he was he said he wanted to do a record you know yeah um and and i was kind of like all right well i'll do one if you can get me you know bill stewart and larry <laughs> grenadier and, and was that like, was nine know, stories wide Exactly. Yeah. So, so nine. So that's the reason I said you know your stuff because Nine Stories Wide actually came out before on Earth. When I hear you're playing, it's easy to hear your lineage. Oh, you that's know, cool. From that's album cool. to album. Yeah, no, it's good. It's because because I mean I, I think it's I would think it's kind of, it's almost a little difficult though because Nine Stories Wide does sound closer to trioing than on Earth. You know what I mean? Yes, on I Earth, agree. Like because the at that point I had almost like two streams that were going on. You know what I mean? They started to kind of get blurrier later. But if you listen to trioing and Nine Stories Wide, they're traditional guitar trio arrangements. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know what? Uh, you know, uh, instrumentation. You know, and then you have Unearth, which is this other wacky thing, but it's actually in between them. But it's really different. You know what I mean? I do, and I'm I'm curious what your opinion is because I feel like when you release Shadowless. That was a real tangible mark of of you really getting your sound hardwired for at least for studio albums. With that album, from the moment you hear it, it's like this is you've really got the sound of yourself and your group like going. Yeah, that's probably true. Although, I mean, I kind of think that happened maybe on South of Everywhere, mm-hmm. but I like the, that you think it on Shadowless because that's cool. Because I always thought Shadowless was this was a strong record. Uh, Burning record, man. Yeah, it's different. It's really different than South of Everywhere. South of Everywhere, in a way, has like catchier tunes or something, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. some really amazing moments. But Sh- Shadowless, it's got a lot like, of energy. Yeah, it's got a lot of energy. That's that's. John, we've we've met in passing a few times out here in LA, just briefly. Oh, sure. Over at the baked potato, but man, it's so great to get to hang with you. And thanks for taking the time to, to join us for the for the podcast today. Um, I think you hinted at it a little earlier when you were talking about these records, but just kind of for the listeners too, I'm curious, do you find yourself now looking back at your discography? I mean, you've recorded a, so many fantastic records as a leader, um, of which I, I mean, I wish we had all day cause I could sit here and ask you about all of them. But, um, do you find yourself going on the road and touring with a lot of material, and then finding yourself in the studio afterwards, or are you more somebody that's conceptualizing a lot of work with the guys that you collaborated with, and then recording it, and then going on the road with a lot of that material? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Whenever I hear like these stories of like these pop bands like going in the studio, they put the songs together, they record it, and then they release it, and then they tour the songs. It's like almost sounds like a like I don't know, like a fantasy or something like that. Like I. I it just I, I, it's so far from the way I work, you know. For me, it's definitely the first way you describe, you know. Um, and it's it's hard. I almost have to like because I finish the album, and usually I almost feel like, all right, we 
let's let's move on. You know what I mean? Yep. But of course, you need to go out and play those songs. And, <laughs> and but I mean, by the same token, I'm also like, I could just play my tunes forever because they're all written to be really challenging and make and kick my ass. So like, I, I you know what I mean? I write almost like that's in the back of my mind when I'm writing. So. So yeah, it's pretty unrelated. It's not like I'm not very project oriented in that way. I know some guys really are. I know Matheny works that way. And in jazz, it's rare. I think the people that do work that way, because I think most of us we want to go out and work the tunes out. Um, which was why I ultimately ended up doing a live album and wondering why I hadn't been doing them all along. You know what I mean? Um, I really like the new live record and that and that vibe, and I think I, I don't know if I'm going to go back to the studio because it just makes a lot of sense when you capture the spirit, you know what I mean, of the music. All that energy, yeah, and you know we agree. It's like with New West, we'll work on music and we'll send it to each other before the tour. Then we go out and tour the music and kind of improve upon it in the band. Oh yeah, and we bring like the stories from the road into the music, and then I believe that comes onto the record. We we've done a live record recently, a couple live recordings and then a lot of studio stuff. But I agree, man, like we, the last thing that new West released was a live record and we're a live group. We love playing in front of an audience. And that yeah. was something I just loved about seeing you at the potato. Although a few years ago, man, you just, you have a, you have a great way of connecting with your audience, which, um, and I, you know, it's not a comment on guys out in New York, but a lot of guys I've seen that come out here that used to play the bakery where they would just get up and be like, all right, what are we going to play next? But yeah, just- yeah, yeah. Well, there's that, there's that. And then there's like the next generation, which is almost like, I almost feel like they're saying, all right, how are we going to alienate and belittle our audience enough to where they, they think we are above them, you know? And I, I can't stand that sense either. You know what I mean? Right. I, Definitely. I, I grew up with guys like Matheny who was playing the most nasty stuff in the world, but doing it in a way where he just, he wanted to bring you into the music, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. It's it's a strange relationship of performer and, and audience and what's happening right now in jazz as a developing art form is a weird, crucial moment. Yeah. You know? It definitely, and, and, you know, I first learned about you because I studied with Gary Versace in high school when he was in Oregon. And right. Oh, cool. Recorded, I think new, new for Now and yeah. Night Songs. Yeah. Uh, and I also picked up Nine Stories Wide because, of course, I was very grateful that the crisscross stuff was starting to be carried at Borders. So I would go through and buy Oh, yeah. Wow. And I felt like I was getting a little peephole into what's going on in New York, you know, being this yeah. kid in Portland, Oregon. and. Oh. I heard your tone. I saw that 175 and I was like, man, this is the kind of guy I need to be listening to. But Gary wow. had great things to say about you. And I asked him a lot about, about you at that time. Cause he was making his transition to New York and still kind of being in Oregon at the same time. Right. That is something I agree, like connecting to the audience. And Gary does that so well on Kurt Elling's gig. We saw him in Jakarta a few years ago playing to that audience and just the way he lights up listeners yeah. solo. And you have that too. And I hope that the listeners on the podcast can get to see you play live when we start playing live gigs again. And I just appreciate that you made the effort coming out from New York to LA frequently. And we joked about it before we started the episode, but you always have an amp to borrow, man, if you need a, because you use a polytone and a deluxe. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was something I just kind of I gravitated towards. You know, although you know, it's funny when I listen back to the records. Sometimes I realize on albums it's not that big of a deal because you have like stereo reverb and you have other stuff that's going on. Like I can't believe that South of Everywhere is all just the Princeton mono. That's the you know, 
And that's a pretty nice tone on that record. I can't say that I like it any better or worse than South of Everywhere, which is all stereo. So, you know, it's tough. I'd have yeah. to probably listen to them back to back. I may end up even saying that I like the mono one better. I, I don't I don't know, you know. All I know is that live, I began to the Princeton modified that I have is like I call it the Franken Princeton. It's like it's it's the one that it's the kind of modification that gave birth to like the Mesa Boogie basically. Right. They took a Princeton, they put a twelve inch speaker, they put a super transformer in it and like a couple six L sixes or whatever the ones that are in a, you know, like a deluxe. Yep. So it's kind of a wacky one. It's really powerful, but it never had enough low end for me live. It was missing some dimension in the lows, which for recording is actually good from what I've heard, you know, which is why there's such good recording amps. I, I love your delivery as a teacher and a player. So, man, we appreciate you being here, dude. Thank you. Yeah, I know. That's, and that's something I'm really, uh, to be honest, that's one of the big changes that's happened as a result of this crazy thing is, is I had... I had gotten to this kind of, you know, artist place where I just I just wanted to write and I just wanted to play and I was actually turning down students for about five years or so, except for um, the New For Now workshop I was doing in Brooklyn every summer and that was great and I would really focus on it and enjoy it, but that was about all I wanted to be doing teaching-wise. You know, I even had a couple calls from a couple universities, which was really... Um, you know, humbling, but I, I just wasn't ready to leave New York or, and stop touring. Then this thing happened right after, you know, just basically burned the candle at both ends for, for four or five years. And in a way, it was like kind of nice. I, I'm guilty to say that I was actually, the timing was perfect. And I also, it coincided with just wanting to kind of share more what I've been thinking about all these years. And and this, and I decided to launch Explorations of Note, which is this new uh, kind of teaching membership thing. And uh, it's been great, you know. It's been uh, the feedback's been great. I, I've been enjoying it because it gives me almost a chance to kind of like I don't want to say codify, but you know, like put stuff into a little more cohesive way of thinking of things. Not that I want to box myself in, but it seems like the more I talk about this stuff. Maybe it kind of organizes one area, but it also opens up all these other ones. So for me, it's been really cool. I've grown a lot as a musician. Yeah. And also I've been getting great feedback and teaching privately. A lot of there's a tier with that has private lessons and the students have really been improving. So I'm like realizing that like a lot of the ideas that I have are transferable to other people, you know, which is kind of cool to hear these guys getting better. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting older, but I'm, I, I feel like I want to I want to give something to the cats and I want to want as I get older I want to hear guys sounding better and better you know I mean it's great to hear you guys that you guys some of you guys took lessons with me and to hear you guys sounding so great so I guess I guess if I was any part at all in that that makes me happy you know um <laughs> can I spin one of these live tracks of yours speaking of your live playing and this this album has a great story behind it that we'll we'll cover after I'm going to play some of wild animals we've seen where was this recorded uh, that's that was in, in Germany in in um, Dusseldorf. Yeah, and it was we we'd actually we actually didn't know we had we were so burnt out and running to the from the airport to the gig. Colin lost his wallet in a taxi. It was like this crazy oh. day. And after the gig, somehow we did that survival mode thing. You know, we just said, "Whoa, let's get through this." You know, and then suddenly it was like we finished. It was like that was actually pretty good. You know, I said. I said to the to the cat, I said, "Man, 
I said, too bad we didn't record that. That was pretty good. And he was like, oh, you don't remember? From the contract, we did record it with multi-track. I you love know? that I story, like, man. All right. So, the, yeah, so the whole album is 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 live, um, unknown. We didn't know it was being recorded. And it's just, it's just uh, from one gig, the whole album, you know. So there was no multiple takes to choose from. You just were like, well, that's what it is. <laughs> taking some chances on that one <laughs> yeah man that was one where it was funny it was the, the you know the piano player martin really went for some stuff too and he and he and when i said we were doing the record you know he was like he's like that's the one i don't know man it's a little like we're, it's a little loose and i was like that nah, don't worry because i because i like really liked his solo you know um and i felt kind of the same way about mine so when he said that it made me realize yeah this has got to go on because i, I felt I felt the same way he did, like, oh, it's got a great energy, but it's a little loose. A couple of the things almost don't make it, you know? And I realized that the way that he didn't like that about his solo, but that's what I liked about his solo. You know what I mean? So then I said, well, it must be the same with mine. You know what I mean? I got to let go of stuff in order to, 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 to achieve something. You know what I mean? And I think that the, the older school cats, not all of them, but I mean, a lot of guys like Train and Wayne, they had that no problem for them. They would let little stuff go because there was the big picture, you know, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get better at that. If I want to do more live albums, I need to, because I can get a little controlling, a little, you know, but that track is a good example of, of maybe where it's good to just let things go sometimes and you're going to reach some other points, you know? Yeah. You know, Hey Jonathan, uh, it's really interesting hey. to hear you talk about that because you know, that resonates with me as a guitar player as well. I think, uh, when you get to a level on guitar where you're trying to push yourself and trying to excel for so many years, um, it can be hard to kind of turn off that analytical part um, exactly, of the brain yeah. when, when you're listening to your playing. But when other people are checking it out, that's like the human quality that sometimes they like to hear, you know? Definitely, definitely. Uh, well, it's really been a pleasure to sit here and uh, listen to you, you know, talk about your albums and talk about your approach and and. I remember that lesson that you gave me at uh, Ferber's spot when you were in LA. Right. That was shortly yeah. before 
I moved to New York and man, I was, I was so stoked going into that lesson because South of Everywhere was a record that kind of got me hooked into your plane. Oh, I remember man, it was, thanks. it was on Mel Bay records, right? Right. Yeah. And, and the new West guitar quartet at the time, now we're a trio, we were a quartet. We had a DVD, an infamous DVD. Oh, wow. Cool. That, that came out on Mel Bay. So we knew those guys. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember Corey Christensen being like, "Oh, you gotta check this guy out." You know, Jonathan Kreisberg is pretty happening. So, That's you know, fast forward, we get to this lesson, and I'm. Uh, this is a funny little story. I'm like eager to get in there, and I've been studying with Joe Diorio, and you know, thinking I had some shit together. And yeah, you, you uh, yeah, you played circles around me pretty good that day. I remember. Oh. <laughs> and. I think you also right. straightened me out on some comping, which is so important. You know, like it's it's really important for guitar players to not overlook that. I mean, uh, in my teaching, it's it's very common where I'll yeah, meet with students definitely. and they'll have some lines together, they'll have some things going on, and then it's like okay, they try to accompany for you, and it's a disaster. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was a very good lesson, very important lesson, and uh, shortly after that, I moved to New York and been inspired by you since then um i Man. wanted to ask you a couple things getting into it first of all about new york uh bar next door it's like an institution yeah. at this point yeah um, you and peter have you know done an incredible thing there i know peter's kind of led the booking for so long but as he tells it you guys kind of got in there around the same time and we're like developing the whole brand of bar next door together yeah i mean i may have been the first person to ever play there i think there was someone else i think ron jackson maybe had done a gig okay there just it was kind of like uh unrelated to what would come you know but i, I definitely was down there one day and i and i saw that room it had just opened up and i said this is perfect for a guitar trio you know and yeah. i somehow convinced them to to try it and uh it just immediately, you know, you could just get the vibe. The sound was just, just great there. And you get such a great sound there, and, and you've had your Wednesday residency. I mean, talk about what that place has meant to you musically. You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I moved to New York, that's what I was, like I said, I was doing, I was just hustling gigs. I would, I would show up, I'd bring an amp, and I'd say, okay, I'll play a solo guitar. Give me dinner. If you like it, we'll talk about something, you know, and they, a lot of, that's how I got a lot of solo gigs, you know, back then I was playing a lot of solo gigs, which I miss sometimes. I miss doing those gigs where only maybe a few people are listening and the rest of people aren't and you're just, you could just shed basically, yeah. <laughs> but in front of people yeah. so that you're, yeah. you know, you have to learn how to just navigate and make myself change keys and do all yeah. kinds of experimenting. It's just, it was just a, a great kind of workshop gig it's always been you know i don't know what i would have done without it because I, I i've never been a big session guy like i don't do a lot of sessions like some people do like i don't i don't really like that thing where people get together and they play in the living room and they play the head okay we got that and they don't really want to blow that much like a lot of new yorkers they're like okay that's cool let's play a little bit but let's move on you know what i mean like people aren't really like in new york they want to do the gigs you know so if you get guys on the gigs it's more for me, that's a more viable workshop, like a gig like that, where it's not like high pressure, you're not being videoed in Germany, and for, you know, for a, something that'll be on YouTube for 30 years or whatever. Um, but you're also playing in front of people. So there's like the intensity, but you're still experimenting. And that gig is like perfect for that because it's like 30 people fit in that room or something. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it's uh, a great And it vibe. does have a great sound. 
the second question I wanted to get uh, a chance to ask you about is the dedication and the commitment to the 175. Uh, that's sort of been my road as well. And again, I've been super inspired by your playing for a long time. Um, your tone is always something that I've really been fascinated with. And it's something you have to contend with when you're playing in any kind of box in jazz. Uh, but particularly sure. the 175 is like, how are you capturing a tone that is going to work for you at the different volumes that this guitar might be played at? Whether it's a su super quiet kind of solo rubato intro to something, Definitely. or whether it's like you throwing down with Stranahan there on that track where you're trying to like use an effect and some overdrive and things to get your sound to cut. And I was going to say, the 175, the other challenge is like, obviously, how do we become ourself on the instrument too because exactly. yeah. there's been so many strong personalities on that instrument you know you know uh going back to you know jim hall and joe pass and obviously matheny being this huge yeah. shadow on that instrument you know and that was a big one for me you know you know i think we you can find your thing it's just you have to, it has to be a semi-conscious thing you have to, it always has to be there like when you make a choice like okay Here's a little, you know, a bunch of little choices, like, you know, you know, if there's someone that's really strong voice on that instrument, you know, you could get a new instrument or you could just find, really look for the ways to do things a little bit different, you know? Yeah, I uh, totally agree. It, it resonates with me. For myself, for my process, it's been like looking up to cats like yourself in New York, cats like Miles, uh, who have a really strong vibe on the 175 and trying to be inspired by it, but not cop it you know like find my own approach i think there's a way you can kind of gain from what you're hearing yeah still trying to like develop your own way definitely um, definitely and maybe yeah. you find maybe if you like i definitely hear now and like my language is so different than pat's you know sure, um sure. and that partially is probably because of that like if i was playing the strat i could have played all the pat material i wanted and it wouldn't really sound like him right. but i wouldn't have found new material you know, so I stuck with the instrument and said, let me find other ways to to sound different, you know? Yeah. Hey, man. All right. Well, we're going to respect your time and thank you again and hope to hang and hear you soon. For yeah. sure, man. Sorry. For hey. sure. Appreciate you, brother. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.